Guys, I'm, I, my name's Nick, if I haven't met you, uh, and lead pastor here. I'm going to get us immediately into uh, the message for this morning, God's Word. Uh, we continue along in um, this little series I'm doing on DNA groups. But before I really introduce that one more time and, and get us in, let's read verses Matthew 28, uh, or I'm sorry, chapter, Matthew, chapter 28 of Matthew's Gospel, verses 16 to 20. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll get one to you or open your app on your phone. Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. I'll give you a moment to get there, read it, pray, and we'll, we'll launch out. And while you're finding, uh, finding your place, I will say uh, thanks to the, the dudes who came out yesterday for the men's uh, hike. It was a great time, um, not just getting some exercise, but also uh, getting to know some of the guys and even uh, um, getting in God's word together, praying for each other. So it was it was a blessing. I encourage you guys to come out next time if you missed it. Um, Okay, Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. God, as always, our hope on Sunday mornings especially, but every morning and all day long in general, is to both live under the authority of your word and at the same time build our lives up upon it. God, I so desperately want for our church to let you have the first word. Not just on Sunday mornings, not just from the pulpit, although we hope that's the case, but all the day long. God, our ears are turned heavenward. Our hearts are open to you. We're longing to hear the voice of our Father. To hear what you would say. To get a sense of how you would guide what you want us to do. And so, Lord, we come to your word this morning asking for you to speak. Asking for you to minister. I know that we bring in a lot of baggage. I know that we are facing really hard situations each with their own nuance and complexities and disorienting factors, but I know that you are the one who is at work in them all, can make sense of them all, can bring good from them all, can lead us through them all for your glory and our good. I want to pray that maybe somehow even the time we spend here this morning together would be to that end. Jesus, would you help me? It's in your name I ask these things. Amen. 
Okay, so real quick house cleaning uh, items just to make sure we're clear on what's happening here. I'm not in Luke's gospel. Uh, I have not been for a few weeks now. Um, we are going to dive back into Luke 16 uh, probably in a couple of weeks. I'm actually going to be gone uh, one of these upcoming Sundays. And I wanted to let you know there is going to be one more part to these DNA group uh, discipleship type uh, sermons here. So this is now, this morning, the third message in a mini-series we've been running entitled Introducing and Multiplying DNA Groups. Um, I know if you're just tuning in, you might not have any idea what I'm talking about, but uh, what I wanted to do here uh, this morning before I really dive into part three is at least catch us up on parts one and two because it kind of builds off of that. And again, I'm going to come back next week and give us a final part four, which really will get to, uh, and I'm sorry to push it off one more week, though, some of those practicals that maybe you're wondering about. What does it look like to start one and lead one and how do I do that? Uh, and I'll get to some of that next week. But, you know, I thought one more week on this, I hope. Uh, will prove very helpful um, to you. So I wanted to to just linger for for a couple more Sundays here. So catching us up then, in part one or in the first sermon, I simply made the case from the verses I just read there in Matthew 28 that every single Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, if you if you call yourself by His name, then you are in fact a disciple of Jesus who, according to Jesus, is supposed to be making disciples of Jesus. Uh, Christians are to be disciples of Jesus, busy making disciples of Jesus. And I explained that my hope with the launch of these DNA groups would be essentially that I'm just trying to uh, provide our church with some sort of orienting vision and supporting structure that might kind of move us along in obedience to that call. That we as a church would kind of have this culture of discipleship where, where we're all kind of engaged in, in not only following Jesus ourselves, but calling others into that and, and pursuing him together. That's my hope with what we're calling DNA groups. And so, again, first sermon, I then spent the majority of that message there attempting to give something of the biblical and theological background to this idea of of DNA groups. And what I looked at there was how uh, human beings... Humanity, we were created in the image of God back at the very beginning, right? But then in the fall, we marred that image. We stopped looking like our dad, it being his spitting image, if you will. We stopped looking like him and we look like something else. But then in Christ, at the cross, resurrection, his life, death, resurrection, we now have this way of being renewed back into God's image. That really the, the, the end goal of yours and my redemption is not just to kind of get us to heaven where we can have a little party with our friends, see some relatives that passed away, you know, drink some wine with Jesus and enjoy it. No, it's actually that we would be fully conformed to God's image. That what he began in the beginning, creating man in his image would be fully realized in glory. That we would be like him in the deepest sense. Not that we would be God, but that we would, we would look like our dad through and through. We'd have his eyes, we'd have his hands, we'd have his feet, we'd have his heart. All right, now there's, there's a 
mix of that, right? We're, we, we, if we know Christ, he's putting us back together, but it's this process. And DNA group's going to get into that process. And it's um, one of the things that I've, I've said, really, is that if the end goal of our kind of redemption is uh, conformity to Christ's image, well, what we come to see in the scriptures as we follow Jesus along in the gospels is that the way he's going to get us to that end goal is what the Bible calls discipleship. Discipleship is learning from Jesus the way of Jesus, engaging with him in such a way that by the time we're done, we look like him. That's what discipleship is. Discipleship is the way that kind of Jesus gets a hold of our DNA, if you will. The molecular level, the inside, and he starts to work from our hearts out. He starts to change. It's what the scriptures might call being born again, things like that. We get something of our dad's genetics and we start to grow under his nurture and care. Now, the second sermon that I kind of took the entirety of our time and simply expounded on the definition of a DNA group, which I uh, just simply wanted to read for you again here, just so you have it in your mind. Uh, and then I'll say a few quick things and we'll, we'll dive into the new material for this morning. But um, DNA groups, here's the definition, are smaller groups of committed people who meet on a consistent basis to discover, the nurture, and... And apply, A, Christ together until he is all in all. DNA groups are smaller groups of committed people who meet on a consistent basis to discover, nurture, and apply Christ together until he is all in all. Now, last time I broke that down bit by bit, but if you recall, I spent the majority of time on that, uh, on those basic steps that form our acronym. Namely, what in the world does it look like to discover, nurture, and apply Christ? That's where I spent the majority of our time because I believe that that really forms the backbone to what these groups are, to what discipleship is all about, to how you and I uh, get renewed in Jesus' image. We discover something of Him with our heads. We nurture what we've discovered of him uh, in our hearts through repentance, faith, prayer. And then we find that stuff working its way out, applying it by the spirit and his grace with our hands in our lives. DNA. Now, it's because of the fundamental importance of these basic steps here that I actually want this morning to lead us even kind of into an even deeper consideration of them. How discipleship really works, how transformation or change or renewal into Jesus's image really works. Um, To be more specific, I suppose you could say I actually want to show you what stands back behind this idea of discover, nurture and apply in Christ. I want to show you there's sort of like a substructure, if you will. There's a model for change that the Bible puts forward that kind of stands behind and informs 
all that I'm talking about when I say we need to discover, nurture, and apply Christ. And I want to show you this. I want you to see it. I want you to get it. I want you to start to work with it, live with it. Because my hope is that, say, you do feel like you want to get into a DNA group with others or maybe even want to facilitate or maybe uh, you just simply want to uh, be a better, more wise, loving friend to people in your lives. I want you to know how Christ is, is actually working renewal in people and in you. I want you to know and get a real clear sense. What does it actually look like? What, how does it actually happen? And how can I partner with God in, in, in this process of renewal in the Father's image? Not just in my own life, but in the lives of others. How can I be a disciple of Jesus, in other words, who is busy making disciples of Jesus? Well, in order to get at that, we need to know how this whole process of renewal and conformity to his image works. So again, I want to go deeper into this with you this morning. So really, uh, I have two things on the agenda for us. Uh, First, I want to show you this biblical model for change that stands behind and informs the three basic steps of discover, nurture, and apply. And then I want to help you see um, how, in fact, uh, the DNA idea maps onto this biblical model. You might not understand what I'm saying right now. I hope by the end you'll go, wow, I get it. I see it. And if you don't, well, I failed you, but I'm here to answer questions. Okay. Uh, So first, a biblical model for change. I want to look at this biblical model for change. Uh, It's come to be referred. I didn't invent this. Uh, I just found it supremely helpful and I use it all the time. Uh, it's come to be known as the three trees model. Uh, some of you may be familiar with it. If you're a leader here, I've probably beat it over your head and tried to get it into your heart. Uh, but I, I want everyone to start to grow fluent in this, uh, in, uh, in these sorts of things. I want you to see how change works. And I think this three trees model is amazing. It was, um, originally developed by a guy, uh, named David Pallison, though, um, this model has been, because it's so helpful, so many people have kind of taken it up and used it, expounded upon it. Uh, some of the more notable examples would be guys like um, Tim Lane and Paul Tripp and their book, How People Change. Highly recommend it. Or there are others like Andrew Nichols and Helen Thorne and their little workbook, Real Change, Becoming More Like Jesus in Everyday Life. Amazing stuff. In fact, I'd encourage these might be resources you'd use in a potential DNA group or something like that because it's phenomenal stuff. Now, um, Pallison was a, the executive uh, director of the Christian Counseling Education Foundation, which was actually right across the street from Westminster Theological Seminary and connected to it. Uh, I say was because um, he recently, like we're talking a few weeks ago, uh, passed away uh, from pancreatic cancer. He'd been battling it for a long, long time. Um, and I bring this up because... The amount of tributes that sprung up on the web in the days after his death, I think, are testimony to the fact that this man had significant influence upon uh, the world of Christian thought and the world of of, of biblical counseling in particular. Um, And I would say, if I had to guess, it's probably his work on this three trees model that has been the most influential of all. I say all this just to kind of get you to please listen 
please, if, if, if leaders all over the evangelical world are, 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 are offering tribute to this man for what he has done in this field, it's worth our listen. It's worth our leaning in and, and, and hearing him out. Uh, while at Westminster Theological Seminary, I actually had the privilege of uh, taking a course from him that really all it is, is is a discussion of this model I'm about to show you and kind of an extended elaboration and reflection upon it. The course was titled Dynamics of Biblical Change. And you can actually take it online as far as I know. If you want, I highly recommend that you do. Um, it may sound a, a little bit trite, but the course truly changed my life and changed the way that I approach ministry and other people. There's a reason why I wanted to devote a whole Sunday essentially to this idea. And I want to show you some of the stuff that's underneath the surface behind this discover, nurture, apply DNA idea and some of the stuff that's coming down the pike with the frameworks and things I'll show you for how your groups might function or how you can engage one another in this process of image renewal. But the model that he puts forward there um, is at one and the same time, and this is what makes it so good. It's at one and the same time simple, meaning you can grab a hold of it. Even a guy like me can grab a hold of it pretty easily, comprehend what's going on. If it's too complex, it's no good for anyone except for those that are sitting in the ivory towers, right? But there's something very simple about it. And you'll see it. You go, why didn't I think of that? Of course, or I've already thought of that. But then you realize that while it's simple and easily comprehended, it's also complex. And by that, I mean, it's able, this model is able to manage all the varieties and complexities of life and make sense of them and help us make sense of what's going on and what God may be doing and how we can partner with him in image renewal and growing in the likeness of Jesus, because that's what he's busy doing in yours and my life, whether you're aware of it or not. And I want to start to show you how this works. Um, all I can really do this morning, again, he spent a whole semester on it. All I can do for us here this morning is really just give us a brief summary. Just hopefully kind of whet your appetite, maybe make you think about reading how people change or looking at that real change book or even taking the online course. All I can do is that. This morning here, but just know I'm indebted to uh, David Pallison for these things. All right. So I want to consider the model itself here. Um, the idea for it really seems to have sprung from a text in uh, Jeremiah. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Jeremiah 17, 5 through 10. I began reading Matthew 28 because, remember, that has what, that's what's kind of set up our discussion just about the, the general issue of discipleship, that we should be making disciples. Now we're getting into the nitty-gritty of what does it actually look like to make disciples. And so for this, we're going to look at some other texts. Jeremiah 17, 5 through 10 is the one I want to focus in on here this morning. I'm going to read it, and uh, we'll try to make sense of it. Verse 5, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man, and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert, and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness and in uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. 
He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the years of in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart, test the mind and give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Now, I know that probably went fast, but again, all I'm going to do now is slow us down and help us see what's there. And I think the uh, first thing that may prove helpful is actually just to simply read to you how uh, Tim Lane and Paul Tripp kind of break down this vivid image that Jeremiah puts forward here. So let me just read this to you. And again, I know it'll still you still may miss some of it, but we'll be making sense of it as we go. Here's what they say in verse eight. The image of heat. Did you catch it? Verse eight. Uh, when heat comes or we also see talking about this idea of the desert or parched places or salt land. But they say in verse eight, the image of heat describes life in a fallen world. It's hard. It's hot. In verse six, a thorn bush in the wasteland represents the ungodly person who turns away from God. Verses five and seven give a clear reference to the Lord as the redeemer who comforts, cleanses and empowers those who trust him. In our model, we represent this part of the passage by the cross to summarize all of God's redemptive activity on our behalf. In verses 7 and 8, we see the metaphor of a fruit tree. It represents the godly person who trusts in the Lord. Verses 9 and 10 show us a God who does not simply focus on our behavior, though He does not ignore it. He's, his focus is on our hearts. He is the ultimate searcher of hearts because they are central to the change process He undertakes in us as our Redeemer. And you remember, I mean, Jeremiah 31, the great new covenant promise. What is it? I'm going to take the law that was once outside of you. I'm going to put it on the inside, on your heart. But we'll look more at that next week. Um, okay. I have now, I think, a slide for you. Couldn't get it? Oh, no? Didn't work. That's okay. It's on the back of your handout as well if you have it. Although I wanted to piece through it one by one. Right now, I didn't want you to see how Discover, Nurture, and Apply overlay. For now, focus on the underlying diagram there, and you'll be able to kind of see what we're looking at and how um, how this model kind of fits together, because I'm going to break down here six important elements in this text in Jeremiah and the imagery that he gives us. There are six, I think, important elements that kind of fill out what this model is. And I want you to see them. We're going to reflect on them. And I hope by the end you'll be able to see how this stuff connects to your own life and to those that you're hoping to help for Jesus. Um, okay, first element number one, heat. Heat. Heat represents the situation or circumstances that a person finds uh, him or herself in. Um, you see it there that, you know, uh, Lane and Tripp say that it's like uh, it's life in a fallen world. And it shows up that there's this idea that we're living in this desert, that that there's something off with our surroundings, our circumstances. The heat's kind of been turned up. And what I want you to understand is it essentially stands for the circumstances of your life, whether good 
And that's the key. Whether good or hard. Whether good or hard, the context that God has placed you in, that there are things kind of being pressed upon you. You are facing certain temptations, certain pressures, certain aspects of what uh, Jeremiah is calling here heat. Now, I know that there are people in this room feeling the sting of the desert air. In their lives these days, whether it's uh, something that's happened to a loved one, something that's going down at work, uh, how your neighbor is treating you, what someone said of you on Facebook. These are the sorts of things outside of your control, immediate control, but that are pressing in on you, calling for a response. It's your heat. It's your situation. It's your circumstance. And there's something going on with this. Now, think with me. In moments of hardship, we're tempted to abandon hope, right? Here's the temptations. When, when life is hard, when the heat is, is kind of hardship, uh, we're tempted to abandon hope in God. We're tempted to kind of look for immediate relief. These are the sorts of things that the devil's going to whisper in your ear, right? Like when Jesus is literally in the wilderness, hey man, just turn that stone to bread. Hey man, just make yourself comfortable now. You don't need to deal with the pain and the suffering. Why would you do that? Your father isn't there for you. I thought he called you his beloved son at your baptism. What's going on? Where is he? Take matters into your own hands. That's the temptations and the sort of stuff we face when life gets hard, when the heat is hardship, when the circumstances are suffering. You know this. You're not a stranger to this sort of stuff. But in moments of blessing, there is no less heat and temptation that comes as well. In moments of blessing, it's kind of a different direction that we might turn with, uh, with things. We'll be tempted in, in, in when life is going well. And you know friends like this, probably, that you're trying to minister to. There was a guy we were talking with the last week where it's like, hey, my life hasn't gotten bad enough to where I think I need to do it. I could still do it on my own. When we have life going well... What ends up happening is not we just turn and praise God, but we're tempted to go, man, look at me. Look at me. Look at what I can accomplish. Look at what I did. Look at, look at what I have created. You know, like Nebuchadnezzar walking around his, his courts. If you remember that in Daniel, he goes, look at the kingdom that I have built. And God says, oh man, you missed it. You're going down with the animals because that's what you're acting like. But in times of blessing, we face different sorts of temptations, different sorts of heat. Same sort of result. We're tempted to kind of turn away, forget, neglect God and trust, rest in ourselves. We forget that every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights and instead act like it's our own doing. Heat. Now, when you think of it, this is actually, I, I believe, precisely what you see going down with the people of Israel and their whole story. If you follow them, you watch this play out almost ad nauseum to the point where you just want to bang your head against the desk. Uh, and then you realize, oh, my goodness, this is what I do. But here's what happens in times of hardship, when the heat is hardship and those are the circumstances that they are facing. Well, what do they do? Typically, they're going to throw their arm up at God. Their fist is in his face and they're going to accuse him. You've forgotten us. You've neglected us. You're abusing us. And then they start to wander towards other gods. Think golden calf. Where, where is he? 
is he? He's abandoned. He brought us out here to kill us. He's not doing the work of God. Let's find other gods. Or in Jeremiah's case, they were going to other nations. Let's go to, let's go to Egypt. Let's go to, you know, let's get help from uh, Assyria or whatever it may be. We want help right now. And God, Yahweh, is not providing it. So we'll figure it out ourselves. Thank you. You just watch it play out again and again and again. But then there's the other side of the cycle. And in Deuteronomy 8, uh, Moses brings this out. And I think I even say on your handouts, I encourage you to read it. But he says, listen, uh, there are going to be times like in the wilderness when the heat is turned up and you feel the desert almost quite literally. And you're like, man, what is going on? This is hard. God's abandoned us. But then there are going to be other times when life is going really well, because Deuteronomy is Moses speaking to them as they're about to enter the land. And he says, listen, when things go really well, when you enter into the promised land, do not think for a moment that your hand has done this. Don't forget that I'm the one who freed you from slavery in Egypt and I brought you here. But what do they do when life goes well and they get there? They go, man, look at us. And then they go after idols, but for different reasons. Now we want more pleasure. We want more whatever. We don't need Yahweh. Look what we did. So it's just this plays out again and again. Over and over in the story of Israel and in our own stories as well. So heat, it's the situation that we find ourselves in. It's the context around us, whether good or hard. It's the it's the context for our growth in grace. And that's what you need to see. And we'll deal more with that next week. But it's it's the context for our growth in godliness. It's what God uses to expose our hearts, to bring that stuff out and to heal it. To lead us to a deeper encounter with him. To show us our true colors, to help us grow. In the image of Jesus. Element number one, heat. It's, I think, pictured by the sun on that uh, model on your handout. Element number two now, thorns. Thorns. Element number two, thorns. Thorns represent our initial and ungodly reactions to the heat around us. So here comes the heat. Out come my reactions. I mean, can anybody give a hearty amen? Like, okay, when the, all the kids are yelling at me, that's my heat. What's my reaction? Would you just be quiet? Out comes the thorns. Whoops. What was that? Here is the man who, upon getting news that his boss has let him go, stomps down through the hall and slams the door to his office in a fit of rage. Pictures falling off the wall. Or here is the woman who, upon being made fun of at the gym for her weight, you could hear the ladies snickering at her, whatever it may be. There's the heat. And upon that, she promptly heads to the bathroom stall and gags out her latest meal. There's the reaction. There's the thorns. There's the stuff coming out in response to the heat. Or here's my son, Levi, who, when one of his sisters takes a toy from him, decides, well, he's going to take a handful of hair. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times this happened in my house. Where I'm like, why does Levi look like Levi just scalped Bella? Like, what is that doing in, in, in his hand, his clump of hair? Well, it was his toy. That's the heat. She's taking it. I want it. Boom! There comes the thorns. There's the reaction. It's the sort of stuff we're talking about here. Life is hard. The heat gets turned up. We're often sinned against, but this does not justify our own sinning. Yet in the face 
of severe heat or drought or desert or famine, whatever imagery you want to borrow from Jeremiah and use here, in the face of that heat, sadly, what we often find is that we respond with sin to sin or or suffering or whatever with more sin, causing more suffering. Self-pity, self-concern, self-love. Thorns rather than fruit. Now, element number three, let's dig a little deeper because there is something underneath the thorns. So we've got the heat, which is your situation, which oftentimes will bring out thorns in your reactions, in your behavior. But underneath those reactions, there is something else going on. And this is where the metaphor of a tree is so helpful. Because in the world of botany, we refer to the part beneath the tree, right, as its roots. And we understand that oftentimes if there are things wrong with the branches of the tree, with the fruit of the tree, the issue is actually underneath the ground with the tree's roots. That there's something going on underneath the surface that if we want to get the roses uh, right, we don't just pull out our, 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 our uh, brushes and paint them red. When they look like they're dying, I know, I know. Bear with me. I know she just wanted to paint white red, but, you know, let's make them look pretty. And we paint the surface of it rather than, well, we've got to deal with what's going wrong underneath the ground. Why is the plant dying? Something's off with the roots. That's the world of botany. In the world of the Bible, when it speaks about human beings, when it speaks about you and me, when God talks about how you and I work, he says on the surface or on the branches, if you're the tree, uh, uh, that's your behavior. But underneath it, we have the heart. The heart is the root of the matter here. The heart is what's underneath the ground. The heart, according to the Bible, is really kind of the center of a person. It is the seat of their will, their desires, their affections, their emotions. It's where you make your decisions. It's where you decide what you want, what you fear, how you're going to get it. It's that place. It's the center most part of your being. And he's saying you're acting, you're behaving in this way. The thorns are coming out because something is going on in there. This is what Jeremiah refers to in verse five. If you notice, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. So there is a heart underneath this thorn bush in the desert. There, there is a heart that has turned away from the Lord to other things. That's why thorns are here. Because we're about to find out there's another tree in the exact same context. Heat, desert, drought. But it's barren fruit. Interesting. Underneath the ground, something is going on, something that we can't immediately see. Here's where we begin to talk about things like motivations. So if you have situation with heat, you have reaction with thorns, then you can talk about motivations with this idea of uh, element number three, the turning heart. I'd call it the turning heart, the heart underneath. And you see it there in the diagram, this, this, the roots, the heart that's turned away from the Lord. Why do people react the way that they do? 
What are they hoping to get out of it? What are they afraid of? What are they believing? Who or what are they trusting? Who or what are they serving? Who or what are they loving? These are the underground heart root issues. This is the stuff that is guiding, by and large, I know human beings are complex, okay? So I recognize there are sometimes biological factors and other things. But there's this heart underneath. These are the things that guide, oftentimes, our behavior. There are whys, W-H-Y, to our actions. Why did you do that? What were you wanting? What were you afraid of? What were you hoping to get? Who were you serving? When a person's heart has wandered from the Lord, it will manifest itself in the person's life. So somewhere beneath the man's angry slamming of the door, I'm just going to kind of riff on some of those examples throughout this sermon. Somewhere beneath the man's angry slamming of his office door uh, is a heart that has wandered from the, the promise of God that he would protect him, that he will provide for him, that he can turn all things for good, that he's not abandoned or forsaken him. See, here's a man who feels like he's been uh, forsaken. And perhaps if you imagine in the situation, perhaps it was unfair, it was unfair and unjust that the, what the boss just did. Maybe he promised him years with the company and all this stuff and then he used him up and just sent him out the door. And this man wants the whole office to know this is unfair, unright. So he stomps down the hall and he slams the door to his office and he's going to keep going with this if he's not careful. His heart has wandered from the truth that God will take vengeance. Vengeance is mine, the Lord says, Romans twelve nineteen. Your job is to trust me to make things right and to move in love, even for your enemies in the meanwhile. But he's saying, I want vengeance. I want justice. I want things to be made right now. Take it into my own hands. Yahweh, you're waiting. You're taking too long and I don't want to wait. So he may go home and start a smear campaign online. Get on whatever that is. Glassdoor. Glass I don't remember the name of that. And write a review that just slams this company. Or he may key his boss's car on the way out. Just whoops. He's hurting. He's been hurt. The heat has been turned up. And he wants to hurt in return. His heart has wandered. From the truest things of God, relationship with him, the root has, has gone bad. So the actions follow. The woman in the bathroom stall, gagging out her latest meal. As tragic as that picture is, she has wandered from her identity in Christ. Now, I know there are nuances to how you handle situations with people that are suffering like this or people that are struggling. But underneath it all, there is a wandering of the heart. She's forgotten her identity in Jesus, that she is accepted, justified, loved, not on the basis of her weight or her waistline, 
but on the basis of Christ and his finished work. I turn to Ephesians 5 for this. I mean, you remember it says that he loves, uh, Jesus loves his bride, gave his, his life up for his bride, that he washes her with the water of his word, that he has given himself to her so that he may ultimately present her to himself without, with, with, in all splendor, without blemish, without spot. In other words, the gospel declares over this poor woman's life the very antithesis of what those women were snickering about in the gym. The thing that caused her to run away and look for some way to fix what's broken. Jesus is saying, you're beautiful. I have made you beautiful. I love you. You already have acceptance in me. And she's wandered from it. She's wandered from it. She wants the guys to notice her. She wants the ladies at the gym to respect her. Maybe even envy her. You been there? I want them not just to respect me, but go, dang, I wish I could be her. Look at the guys all flocking. Ugh! I want to be that girl, you see. The heart has wandered from the Lord. It's a turning heart. And when the root goes bad like this, it's going to have devastating effect above ground in the life. Okay. Element number one, heat. Number two, thorns. Number three, a turning heart. Number four, the cross. The cross. The picture back in Jeremiah 17 makes it plain that running underneath all of these hard and hot situations, there are streams of living water available to us if we should so desire. That, that God is there, that Jesus is there in the midst of the heat. I mean, think of Psalm 23. You love it. But it says what? The shepherd helps me go, uh, you know, do an end run around the valley of the shadow of death so I don't have to go through it. No, the shepherd leads me through it. He is there with me in the middle of it. I mean, this may make us think of things like Psalm 46, verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. Very present right there. The streams, living water. Running right underneath the surface, that heat available to you. Here's where we remember what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. He's not throwing you in the deep end going, I hope you can figure out how to swim. Good luck. If I did that as a dad, I'd be in jail. And God is a much better father than I am. He's right there with his kids. He's right there. He may be exposing, testing the heart in very gruesome, hard, difficult situations, but he's right there if we turn and trust. You may think also here of that text we read at Christmas, but that we need to remember all the year long. Matthew 1, 23, you remember, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us! 
He's right here in the midst of the heat. You thought he'd forgotten you. He's right beside you. Wow. Emmanuel, God with us. God is with us in the heat. And we see this most profoundly in the person and work of Emmanuel, Jesus, represented in our model here as the cross, which we would call the third tree, if you will. The third tree. Now, I love how Nichols and and Thorne, um, in their book, sum up this element. So I wanted to read this to you. The cross represents all the promises of God's mercy, culminating in Jesus' death and resurrection. Through the cross of Christ, our bad root is transformed. We are forgiven. We are given a new life. We're connected to streams of living water. The Spirit of Christ... It's in going to Jesus and asking for forgiveness for our self-centered desires, thoughts, and actions that transformation begins and continues. Change happens as the Spirit brings us to the God of mercies. Repentance is not just something you do at the beginning of your Christian life. Yes, you're fundamentally changed as the law is written on your heart. But no, it's not done. It's a process. As we've seen, we need to put off the old man and put on the new man. And that involves this engaging with Jesus and the gospel, repentance, faith, prayer. Coming to the Father of mercies, tapping into the living streams of water that flow to us in the spirit from him. So the man in our example... Catches himself, perhaps, before he slams the door. Even though he wants to. Oh man, he wants to. I want to just break, I want to burn this place down. I feel so betrayed. But instead, he closes the door to his office. Before he packs up his things and all that, he gets down on his face. And he speaks to the God who is near. He opens up his Bible and he reads and he reads and he doesn't get up until he's met with his Savior, until his roots have gone out into the streams of living water and something has changed with it. This leads us then to element number five. So heat, thorns, turning heart, cross, now trusting heart. Element number five, a change in the heart, a trusting heart emerges as we, as we engage with Jesus in his word through repentance and faith and desperate prayer. The turning heart becomes the trusting heart. And I don't mean to make this sound automatic. It is a war. This is Jesus, again, in the wilderness. If you need a picture, go to Matthew 4 or Luke 4. There it is. I think it's Luke 4. I can't remember. It is written. It is written. It is written. He's battling on his face the temptations that are coming at him in view of the the heat of the wilderness and his context. But here in Jeremiah, um, uh, Jeremiah's picture, we see this in verses 7 and 8 in particular, this idea of the trusting heart. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. I love that. It just says the same thing, but again, it kind of puts an emphasis on it. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust 
is the Lord. Like, not just kind of in the Lord and what he said and some, you know, vague words or ideas somewhere out there. But as a person, I am leaning in, pressing in on him, embracing him. He is my trust. Verse 8, he's like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream. So there's something changing on the inside of this man. His identity isn't wrapped up in his work. His, his, his own injustices and things are starting to, uh, uh, to some degree, pale in comparison to the injustices uh, of, of those which were faced by the one he is now fellowshipping with, namely Jesus. You see, we feel all hot under the collar and like we have a, a cause, you know, worthy of concern. And we do. And God will make every wrong right. But, man, we think it's so much more important. And then we fellowship with the one who took all of my, what the justice that should have been mine for my sin. He took it. I mean, the cross is the ultimate injustice, brothers and sisters, on, on one side of the coin. It is the ultimate injustice. The only man who ever, who, who never sinned and always obeyed his father is the one drinking the cup of his father's wrath for you and me. You fellowship with him truly, meaningfully, deeply, and you don't walk out of that office and key your boss's car because you just got to make it right. Instead, this man packs up his things Maybe walks down the hall to his boss's office, comes in, shakes his hand, looks him in the eyes and says, thanks for the years here. I'm going to miss you guys. And he means it. Oh, he knows there's a lot more that could be said, but he knows the God who will make it right in the end and who calls him and enables him to love his enemies in the midst of it. It's amazing. So this then leads us to the final element that I wanted to bring to your attention. And that is namely fruit. Because if you notice, I'm already starting to bring it out. They can't be really disconnected from one another as this man is meaningfully engaged with Jesus. And he's sent the roots of his hearts deep into the streams of living water that are available to him at the cross. And he, and he, and he repents and reroots there. And stuff changes, the, the, the turning heart becomes the trusting heart, and that starts to manifest itself in the branches of his life. Fruit. Love. Peace, patience, kindness. Notice again, and this is perhaps one of the most important insights you can bring from this, the heat hasn't changed. The man still has a bad boss. <laughs> he still has a bad boss. He still has to go get on Indeed.com or whatever and find a new job. I think that's... I'm, just, I'm forgetting all my websites today. <laughs> I think that's the one. <laughs> but the heart has changed. The heat is the same, but the heart has changed because it's engaged with Jesus and there's a transformation from the inside out. Amazingly, I mean, here's here's what Jeremiah says. It does not fear when heat comes for its leaves remain green. This is the end of verse eight. This tree doesn't fear when the heat comes. The, the heat still comes. But the leaves remain green because they're settled into deeper waters. 
And it's not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The drought still comes. The heat still comes. Life in a fallen world is still hard and tempting. And you're still facing all sorts of things every moment of every day. But everything can change about the heart because we're pressing in to Christ. And accessing His Spirit in His grace. So this man can walk through the same exact situation in a radically different way. I dare say, in a way that looks like Jesus. In other words, conformity to his image. Image renewal is taking place. Biblical change. This is how it starts to happen. This is how it works. Simple, yes, but able to hold the complexities of your life and make sense of them. And give you some way through them. Now, what I need to do in earnest here, goodness gracious. Yeah, what I need to do in earnest here is show you uh, how this maps on, or how our, our basic steps of discover, nurture, and apply map onto the biblical model. And you can see it right there on the back of the handout in diagram form, but I want to at least tell you here and make sure that you see it. So all that I'm saying and all that I've said about discover, nurture, and apply. Oh, nice. Uh, about discover, nurture, and apply. Uh, really, I, I just am trying to, to crystallize what I gathered from the scriptures and this biblical model for change. I just want to show you how it works, how it maps onto the other here very quickly. Discover corresponds with the cross level in the three trees model. So we come to learn more of who God is. And what he has done and what he has said, what he's accomplished for us in Jesus. So that's the discover piece. I need to see him. I need to learn about him. I need to do Bible study, get in the word, press in in prayer. I need to go there and discover things about him with my head. But then now the uh, root level in our uh, in, in the model corresponds with the, the, the nurture aspect of these basic steps where we need to engage uh, God with our hearts. We need to move from trusting in, loving, serving, false gods, false gospels. And we, and we need to transition towards trusting, loving, serving the one true God and, and believing in the, the, the one true gospel. The only good news that, uh, that there really is is revealed in Jesus. And then finally, uh, our basic step apply corresponds obviously to the fruit level. This is the stuff with the hands. This is the stuff that's hanging from the branches of your life. That the ultimate goal of discipleship to Jesus is conformity to his image. And that means you're going to start to bear the fruit. Looks like him. Not the fruit of the flesh, but the fruit of the spirit. The fruit of Christ. Now, what I want to do at the close here in an effort to put all of this together is simply return to the example of that woman I mentioned. And I... Uh, I want you to imagine that she's in your DNA group. I want you to imagine that she's in your small group of people that are committed to discover, nurture, and apply Christ together. Until he's all in all. And you hear what's going on, and you know that she needs to, to, to change and grow, and you know that God wants to, to, to help her grow, and, and, and you want to help her grow, but you're... Where do you start? What do you do? Now, in an effort to come at the right answer... I want to um, show you kind of what not to do for a moment. 
we are going to be prone, perhaps well-meaning, well-intentioned, we are going to be prone to make certain reductions to this model, uh, to these basic steps, when in reality, what we need always to keep in our minds is the entirety of them. That we, we are going to be prone to kind of focus in on one piece or another, and I'll show you what I mean by that. But what this woman really desperately needs is for us to see this in its entirety and to see her in light of its entirety and to help at all levels. If we don't do that, then we have ultimately let her down and done her a disservice. So let me show you first three of what I would say maybe more of the common reductions that we might be prone to make. And we'll make our way towards the, the full response, the full approach that I think is right. Reduction number one would be to just simply focus in on the heat. Change the heat. Just change the heat. Think about this with me. Some of us are tempted, I think, when we see hurting people, and we we, we mean it well, but we just want to focus on the heat. In other words, we just want to focus on the situation. So the person trying to help this woman will say, well, if those ladies are in there and they don't see how beautiful you are and they're giving you a hard time, change gyms. Cancel the membership. Change the heat. In other words, get away from those ladies or get away from that gym environment there and go to another gym. Like maybe go to the gym that uh, is next to where my, my daughters go to gymnastics. You know, I, I don't remember the name of it. It's like 24-hour fitness or something. But on the front, it has this big sign, you know, to make everyone feel welcome. Judgment-free zone. And you go, oh. That's where I'll feel okay. People aren't judging me in there. So get out of that gym where everybody looks like a supermodel and go in there. You'll feel good. Maybe that's a, again, that's a part of the whole, perhaps. But it's not going to get at the fundamental issues of this woman's heart. At the things that are really underneath the surface. So it may help for a little while. But then when she's watching TV at night and a commercial comes on, with some lady scantily clad, whatever, saying, hey, don't you want to be like me? The same thing in her heart. I want to be like that. The identity stuff, the, 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 the roots are not settled in the living water. And so it's going to come out, if not on the TV, then when she's checking out at the grocery store and there's the, there's the you know, lineup of, of, of cover girls on the magazines. Help for a little while to tinker with the heat, but it didn't change anything ultimately. It's not biblical change. And we're all prone to this sort of thing in one way or another. Just, we like to blame our problems on external, circ- external circumstances. I need a new job. I need a new house. I need a new location to live in. I need a new uh, uh, girlfriend, boyfriend, wife, husband. I need, my, I need this. And then I'll be all right. And it, tinkering with the heat never gets there. We might make another reduction. Uh, Reduction number two, we might just kind of try to change the fruit. Just change the fruit. We act like the change process is is so simple. In other words, and if I'm honest, this is a lot of times what happens, like say with, with me and I'm parenting, right? A lot of times what we'll do is we say, I see the behavior I don't like the behavior. Pulling your daughter's, your, your, or pulling your, your sister's hair is not good. Therefore, stop it. Just stop it. And if you don't stop it, I'm going to you know, bring some bad consequence, whatever it may be, right? Just stop it. And they go, well, why? Because I said so. And that should be enough. You go, now I know there are times as parents for that. You just you can't possibly go <laughs> through this with them. 
But at the same time, we always want to be aware that that is not enough. You can't just look at this, this woman and say, hey, listen, you know that it's bad, right? Yes, I do. You know that you, you shouldn't be going out and, 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 and sticking your fingers down your throat or you shouldn't be thinking this way or that way, right? You know that, right? Yeah, okay, well then, stop. It's more complex. It's harder than that. There's stuff underneath. There's a heart that needs to be uh, led to Jesus. We need to get underneath that. What is, why are you doing it? What do you want? What are you afraid of? What are you hoping in? Where is Jesus? What does he say? How can we encounter him in this place together? So we don't just need to change the heat. We don't just need to change the fruit. Now, there's a third reduction, and that's we might just try to change the root. We get a sense, okay, that it's not just changing the situation out there. Oh, we need to change the person, so let's change the behavior. Oh, that doesn't exactly work as well as we thought. We realize that there are things underneath the behavior that are motivating and things like that. So we try to just kind of go for the heart. This is where you kind of get the ideas that come about with what they call cognitive behavioral therapy, that you're thinking certain things about yourself. You're talking to yourself in a certain way. You need to change that. And then you'll change your behavior. Cognitive behavioral therapy. So they would look at this woman and say, listen, here's what I... And I'm, be, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but it would be like this. Hey, here's what you need to do. I get that underneath there's this identity thing and there's this struggle with being beautiful and all that. But what the problem is, is you need to change the way you're talking to yourself. So here's what I want you to do. Here's the exercise. In the morning, after you get up and before bed, I want you to go into the mirror in your bathroom. Look at that mirror. Look at yourself in the eyes. Don't look to the right or the left and tell yourself at least 10 times, I am beautiful. Notice you're always telling yourself all these other things. You just need to shift it around and then you will no longer have those bad behaviors in your life that you wish you could stop. And again, it may help. It may be a part of the the composite whole, but it doesn't go deep enough. Positive self-talk will ultimately fail this woman in the end because it's not rooted in ultimate reality, the ultimate reality that is revealed to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's just changing the way I talk. We need to root into something deeper. You see, this woman doesn't just need to change the way she talks to herself. She needs to let Jesus talk to her. She needs to let him tell her what to think about herself. She needs to let him lead her to the cross. I mean, you understand, here's what's so amazing about the cross. In the light of the cross, this woman can actually do at one and the same time She can both own up to her struggles with identity and even her wandering, turning heart. She can own up to that and say, yeah, I see I'm doing that. But she can also find forgiveness, acceptance, freedom, love. All right there in the same moment we can get real and find the one who also wants to protect her from these ladies or from what society would say. Who wants to give her another interpretation on reality. But it's not just her own little self-help strength talk thing. It's, it's, It's Jesus. It's the one who made reality. Telling her how it works. You root into that. And there can start to be changes in the heart and changes in the life. And I do not mean to say in any way that this is simple. I hope what you've gathered is you need the whole thing. That the process of change is complex. And, and multi, multiform and rich. And that the fruit that we will bear will also be complex, rich, multiform. So I hope 
I hope you find this helpful. And I hope, I know I haven't done a lot of personal application. I hope along the way you see yourself there. What is your heat? What are your reactions? What's going on in your heart? How can Jesus meet you in that place? How can you engage with him, wrestle with him through repentance, faith, desperate prayer? And find your heart turning to trust in him again and bearing fruit in the very same situation that was once bringing out something nasty. Let's pray. God, this is what you want from us to grow, to grow in your likeness, to grow in grace, to find freedom in you, acceptance in you, to start to look more and more like you. Jesus, this is what I want to see in our church more and more. And God, this is what I hope you infuse our DNA groups with. We want to be groups of people that, are, that know one another, are meaningfully engaged at heart levels, coming to you, pursuing you, doing real life stuff, dealing with real life issues, and growing together towards you. I'll pray, I'll pray you would use these things to that end. In your name, I ask. Amen.